What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We were just talking before we started recording about, you know, how close the election is. And we actually had a little little debate, an unresolved debate amongst ourselves, whether it's 48 days or 49 days. And I said how, I mean, I'm never good with numbers, but like since months have variable lengths, I'm never quite good at figuring out like how many days, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it is uh, September 16th. So how many days is that till November 3rd? Uh, but regardless of how many days, it's somewhere between 50 and 45. I think we're I think we're settled on that. And that is really close. We're almost to that point where I mean we're we're a touch we're you know close to the the to the midway point in September. Um and we always, you know, we always have to remember that we we you know we talk about the November election and obviously it varies a little bit between like the 3rd and the 8th depending on when that when that Tuesday is on the month. But basically the election doesn't, you know, the campaign isn't happening in November. It's kind of, it, it ends right at the beginning. So October is like the big, you know, the big rush, the big, the time when the election is really happening. And we are close. And I think, what is it? We're, we're, um, touch less than two weeks until the first debate. That's right. Uh, two weeks from yesterday. It was, uh, yeah, Tuesday, yeah. the 29th of September. Okay, yeah. So right at right at the end of September, and actually, I I haven't posted it yet, but I was I was do, I was just writing a a post about the debates because there's this funny thing with Trump. No president has been more uh, cocooned, you know, bubbled in a sheath of fawning, fluffing news coverage, right? I mean, he's on Fox constantly. I mean, even like the sort of the B team Fox shows yeah. get him it was know, kind of hilarious. routinely. Even yesterday, you know, Trump uh had a call in segment with Fox Fox and Friends and he said, Oh, I'm gonna be here every Monday, uh, which was news to the hosts and I don't think <laughs> not necessarily welcome news to them. But um right. it was kind of it almost reminded me of him like almost resigning to the fact that he is likely to lose in November because he used to have a weekly call in slot on Fox and Friends before he, you know, launched his campaign and kind of officially entered politics. Oh, so is it's that kind really of like, true? I don't yeah, remember that. He oh, had okay. a kind of a regular weekly call in thing, um, just like he did yesterday, and so it was almost like a return to form, you right, know, right, to right. To the good old days before he got into all of the. Well, that's that is sort of another aspect of Trump's presidency that, from on the one hand, or from a certain vantage point, or with certain politicians, you would say, well, he's going to, you know, kind of unshackle himself from the constraints of the presidency and go back to like telling, you know, kind of doing his own thing or whatever. Um, but in practice. He's now he never accepted the shackles, right? I mean, he's he's kept he's kept doing that thing as 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 president. And I think like what is it this weekend? He did a thing with Janine Pirro, who again is sort of one of those kind of B team 
Fox, you know, even crazier than Hannity and Ingram. Right. Uh, she's like relegated to Saturday evenings, right? Yeah. When really Saturday evenings when everybody's <laughs> like, you know, kind of saucing up and stuff. Uh, so, um, so, you know, so he's, he is almost a hundred percent on Fox, certainly since the relatively early days of his presidency. I think in the first six months he was still doing like, you know, kind of network TV interviews. There was that notorious Lester Holt interview where he sort of dropped the Russia explanation about firing right. James Comey. And uh, so he had this, but he did have this town hall yesterday on ABC with George Stephanopoulos. And actually I did not see it because I actually don't have, um, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of in this weird cord cutting situation now where I have everything that you can, uh, you know, kind of get online, all the stuff that most of us watch. And at TPM, we have a system where we can watch and also clip videos of CNN and Fox and all these kind of things. But ABC is not set up for that. So I had no way to, so I did not see it, but I heard about it. And uh, it's sort of the exception that proves the rule. Although he does seem to have some, some uh, thing for Stephanopoulos, because he did, he's, he did the one interview like a year ago where he said, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd probably take, you know, Russian help. Why not? And then did he do another? He did one more recently than that too, but I right. I'm like struggling two. to remember what particular quiet thing he said out loud in those. But one right, was an like, Oval like, Office interview, I think. Right. Well, there was the so there was the one like a year ago, sometime in like the middle of 2019, or maybe even early 2019, or something like that. And there was one like two or three months ago. Um, but besides those, he is like never on. You know, he, he, he is never off Fox, where he is almost always going to get fawning coverage with the, with the exception of, of uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Chris Wallace. Yeah, Chris Wallace. Um, and will, will, like, never get, you know, critical or, or pressed on when he says things that are just nonsensical. Um, and... So that means that the debates are really kind of an unknown, right? Because they are, you've got your opponent there who can say things. You generally have reporters who will at least, you know, kind of follow up if you say something totally absurd. Um, and Trump has just not been exposed to that hardly at all, Um either at all, or when he does, they're in settings where he controls the mic and he can just leave. And if you, and if you think about it, probably half of his COVID press conferences have ended where he gets a couple critical questions. He gets frustrated and he says, okay, bye. (laughs) Or if he doesn't like them, he can just, you know, fake news, nasty questions. Because it's always from reporters who he's already made out to be enemies. And it's also, again, he controls the mic. Right. Like kind of like he can literally talk over them. Um, So he is in a great deal of control. So that makes the debates very unpredictable. On the other hand, it's not like we're not really used to him saying just totally absurd things, just totally insane things. You know, uh, in 1976, I don't know if it affected the um, the outcome of the election, but Jerry Ford, who was not an idiot, was a pretty knowledgeable, you know, guy, 
uh, in the debate with Jimmy Carter denied that Poland was under the domination of the Soviet Union. And everybody's like, even during the thing, the reporter whose name uh, I forget, uh, basically said in the debate, like, like, do you want to rephrase that? Like, what are you talking about? Right? It was just this kind of like, and that was like, is he all there or what's going on? But Trump says stuff like that all the time. So, he, so even if he gets called out on saying something totally absurd, you know, is it going to be that different? from just like the clips that I grab and everybody else grabs from like Hannity, right? <laughs> so so it's weird. Is it going to be like worse for him or better for him? Um, in any case, we're going to talk about that and other issues. And before we get to that, let me remind you that Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is a sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. And even more than that, they've stepped up to the plate and are offering a special offer above and beyond that 20% discount for TPM, uh, TPM readers and Josh Marshall podcast listeners, the first time you order uh, Grady's. Now it's 25% off for every order you do. Like you can do 50 orders, 54 orders. With that number is still, or is it 55? I can't 55, remember. 55, yes. Yeah, 55. That number is still locked in my head. Um, so uh, yeah, just to, just to stepping up to the plate. So, so listen to this. The most important election in our nation's history is right around the corner, and we need to be alert, energized, and fueled to get out the vote. To help keep you caffeinated for the fight of our lifetime, Grady's Cold Brew is offering 25% off site-wide from now until Election Day. All fans of the Josh Marshall Podcast and Grady's Cold Brew are eligible for the deal with no limits. Order now and you get Grady's famous New Orleans-style coffee delivered straight to your door or send a batch to your local campaign headquarters. Grady's can be poured hot or cold and is available in regular and decaf ready to give it a swirl get 20 percent off at grady's coldbrew.com with promo code tpm all right well josh you alluded to this a little bit at the top of the episode but i wanted to um talk to both of you about a post you just put up which is kind of looking at yeah i guess it's a thought exercise looking six months down the road which will be i guess late winter 2021 and kind of using that hindsight as 2020 to kind of examine how things are looking now in the election like you mentioned in your post the polls have been remarkably constant showing biden with a pretty solid lead Um, but we have kind of at the margins all of these shenanigans from people like michael caputo from janine pirro like you mentioned from roger stone you know talking about armed insurrections, uh, you know, trying to quash protests. And and basically, if Biden wins the election, you know, of calling for a violent uprising. Um, tell us about like your post, kind of what sparked that, that line of thought for you, um, sort of how it came to your mind uh, this morning. Well, a couple things, I think kind of two things I've been thinking about a lot recently. And one of those is that Every day, almost, there's something like this with some, you know, not some random person on a blog somewhere or some kind of like, you know, shock, shock, talk radio guy, but someone like very close to the president saying something like, you know, stock up on guns. We're going to it's all going to go to the mat, you know, go to the mats after Election Day. There's going to be there's going to be violence and Trump's going to have to put down, you know, the crazy, crazy stuff. And um after a certain point, I, I, I've sort of felt like, well, you know, if I just keep posting, okay, here's today's crazy violent threat, right? It's sort of, it becomes monotonous. Um, 
But that kind of becomes the point that this is becoming very regularized and you can see how it is becoming mainstreamed, right? They kind of get it started with these kind of, you know, Michael Caputo's kind of things. This, you know, the, the epidemiologists, the CDC are plotting to murder me and my family. And, uh, you know, Biden's going to call, going to declare an insurrection and Trump's going to have to put, you know, call the military to put put the protest, put the insurrection down, all this kind of crazy stuff. And then you see it in like Janine Pirro saying, oh, you know, Democrats are saying they're going to have riots if you win, which obviously like, no, they're not. Like that's not, that is actually not not the case, but gives him a uh, a platform to say, oh, we're just going to, you know, call it the military, put those guys down. So it starts there, but you, you see it being filtered up to the president. Um, and we need to watch this because this is this is happening. I, I don't I don't think it is likely that that will actually happen in real life. But a series of explanations and justifications and sort of uh, plot lines and plans are being pushed out there. And again, it it gets normalized and then it gets voiced by the president and and. We need to focus on this. We need to highlight it. We need to kind of make sure everybody sees what they are at least talking about, laying the groundwork for, even if it even if it seems quite unlikely. And then the other thing is just I, I've always been fascinated as a as a lapsed historian and also just someone who who lives in history like everyone else, uh, trying to. Um, make sense of the inherent uncertainty of living in history and how things look in retrospect. You know, like when I think back to the 2012 election, when President Obama was, re- was reelected, um, it kind of seems sort of obvious to us now. Well, of course he was reelected. He's popular president, you know, reelected Romney, blah, 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 blah. Um, I remember very clearly the final Gallup poll, and I think you probably remember this too, David, from, and I think you were, you were with us in 2012. Um, the final Gallup poll had Mitt Romney like ahead, like two points. Um, and there was that first debate, right, with, that Obama right. did not do very well. And, you know, we're coming up on the first debate of this general election. Yep. And so, you know, even just uh, not the optics exactly, but that can change the course and the momentum of a campaign pretty quickly, too. Yeah, and 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 I I think that I think that most of us probably thought it was likely that he would be reelected, but it certainly didn't seem like a certainty. Retrospect seems like certainty. People in the future, people who 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 look at us in the past, uh, they know more. Um, so I always like to think like kind of like okay, let 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 me send a message to myself six months into the future. Does it seem like it's pretty? You know, Biden's obviously going to win. Well, it it seems pretty scary and a lot of wild cards at, you know, like a ton of wild cards and, and a lot of kinds of wild cards we've never had before. Some because of the pandemic, some because of the lawlessness of, of the president. Um, on the other hand, if Biden does win, I think people will kind of understandably look back and say, look <laughs> for like the 10 months before the election, like almost every poll, he's he is beating the incumbent president by between seven and ten points. Like, how is that uncertain? 
It's like, it's like, it, it, it's, it's obvious. Um, so that, that's what that's about. Uh, the, the inherent uncertainty of, of living in history in every case, but the extreme uncertainty of this moment where creating chaos, creating uncertainty, um, creating the sort of the specters of the unknown is just a huge part of President Trump's entire campaign plan uh, to a great degree because to the extent that we have a conventional by-the-books process, he's obviously going to lose. So that's what he has. Right. Well, looking towards the debate a little bit, Kate, I'm curious, what are you expecting or looking out for or kind of what's on your mind as we approach that um you know trump is not someone who can really debate on policy and we have biden you know people are kind of worried how sharp is he going to be on stage versus trump um and then like josh mentions we have trump just we're all kind of used to him spouting off all these crazy things time and time again um so what's kind of on your mind as we as we rapidly approach this first debate yeah, and one thing I want to say real quick first, just kind of to Josh's point, is, um, you know, I've been working on a kind of thought experiment piece, I guess, about Democrats' you know doomsday scenarios, which I think we're going to get into a little bit later. But a consistent through line of those is you don't really realize how much of our government works because people abide by like an honor code or because people decide not to torpedo the democracy like there are some you know mechanics in place that stop people from doing certain things but the latitude in between those things is huge you know like constitutionally republican legislators legislators could decide to directly allot their electors to trump there's nothing in the constitution that stops them from doing that but what stops them from doing that is that would spark a you know civil unrest a huge crisis if these states decided to do away with their elections but you know i think part and parcel with that is the fact that trump doesn't care about you know norms doesn't have really any stake in a stable functioning democracy has made crystal clear that he would prefer to win the election than to preserve the systems that keep our democracy running so it really i mean it kind of the weird thing that keeps popping up in my mind is it's like the lines that are painted on the street. Like we assume everyone's going to follow them and that's how we're able to drive and function. But Trump has shown that he does and is laying the groundwork to show that he doesn't care about driving within the lines, you know? And I think that is why, you know, we're calling these doomsday scenarios, but to some degrees you can't blame people for worrying about them because Trump has established that, you know, he isn't mind blowing that stuff up. Um, but yeah, on the debate point, I think it's just going to come down so much to how much of hard asses the moderators are willing to be. Because if they are not really prepared to fact check, and I mean, fact checking in real time is so hard, unless you're talking about, you know, a narrow story that you know all the ins and outs of. And Trump says things that are so insane that it's sometimes not as clear as, okay, no, there's actually not proof for rampant fraud and mail-in voting. Sometimes you, you don't even really know what he's talking about exactly, to fact-check yeah. him. So, I mean, it's going to be incumbent on these people who were chosen to really, really prepare about the topics they're going to talk about and be pretty like unrelenting, you know, not to let him off the hook or not to let him change the subject. Um, and that, to me, is kind of up in the air. Uh, on the one hand, I think journalists who have conducted 
tough interviews with Trump have been pretty flooded with accolades afterwards from people in those same communities, which, you know, that means a lot if that's your professional circle. So in that way, I think there's impetus to be one of those people who gets a reputation for being tough and not letting him off the hook. But on the other hand, as we've kind of learned from members of the Trump administration, like, you know, like Kellyanne Conway, you can get away with a lot if you don't care about the norm, like even the the kind of social politeness norms of the conversation. You know, she is impossible to fact check or to corner because she runs roughshod over the societal niceties of letting the other person finish or, you know, not talking over other people. So I think to some degree, you know, if Trump just refuses to answer their questions or refuses to be fact checked, I mean, what good are they? Yeah, you know? I think so. Chris Wallace is the first moderator. Uh, Josh, like you mentioned, he's sort of the only Fox personality to to confront Trump in a in a real meaningful way. I haven't seen whether there's going to be an audience or not. I really don't think so. I feel like the town hall format is the only one that they're going to have some in person, you know, audience members. I guess they can for. do kind of what they did last night, which is yeah. you know, it was a kind of a surreal sort of yeah. You know, it's it, one of those things when you see like a concert that no one showed up for, right? <laughs> you see a person just say like a whole a whole grandstand to them to them to themselves. Yep. I will say one thing. I think what I what I worry most about uh, in 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 these debates is that President Trump will be saying lots of nonsensical stuff and will basically force the moderators to come at him to a significant degree, but then they will feel obligated to to basically beat up on Biden too to not make it seem like they have it in for Trump. And so and frankly I expect this will happen. You'll have President Trump saying, you know, China did this on purpose. They sent this. It was not our fault. Uh and you know, Biden didn't do a mandate, you know, just a bunch of nonsensical stuff. You know, a Chris Wallace says, no, 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 and blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, Biden gets something about, oh, you know, um, what's your health care thing? And they say, well, you know, I want to kind of expand on Obamacare. Oh, isn't it not true that you're actually pushing through Medicare for all? So they will, they are, I wouldn't see it in an impossible position, but in some ways, the way that sort of mainstream journalism works, they will be in a bit of an impossible situation that Trump will act in a way where if they just are even handed in how they deal with it, it will seem like they are beating up on Trump constantly through the entire debate and no one wants to have that. And so certainly uh, not Fox, I guess, right? Certainly not Fox, um, or I guess, but he's doing it for the commit. So it's not a Fox debate. It's just right. he's yeah. doing it. He's doing it uh, for the uh, the presidential commission yeah. on debates or whatever. And then they're on all yeah. the networks, right? They, I mean, they're it's sort of as a public a public service kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's a it's a weird it's a weird thing, and it's always gotten you know it 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 didn't exist until you know the the history of presidential debates is very weird. That the first one is in 1960, um, and then. People, a lot of people don't quite realize it was another 16 years before there was another presidential debate, and that was in 1976. And after 1976, they've, they became, uh, you know, uh, just an automatic part of the system. And I think, I think the Presidential Commission on Debates, I think, was started between 
1988 and 1992. It's possible that it was around for, for 88. And it was basically a former head of the DNC and a former head of the RNC in a different era when those, you know, when it was, those jobs were very, were, were very different. Um, and it's always gotten kind of beat up a lot because it's basically funded by lobbyists and funded by all the kind of whatever. It kind of, I guess the idea is, and I think this was the premise for it, that by creating a sort of a center of gravity apart from the candidates, it it took some of the initiative out of the campaign's hands. Um, because, you know, it, it, it used to be before that, or at least the possibility that the person who's winning gets to dictate, right? Kind of incumbents running away with it. I mean, that's sort of, I mean, if you look at, um, if you look at, you know, why were there no debates between 1960 and 1976? It's basically that you have a series of elections, three elections, where for very different reasons, there's sort of no incentive for the person who has the strong hand to do it. Um, In 1964, you have uh, Lyndon Johnson basically, you know, cruising to a landslide, no reason why he's going to uh, agree to debate. And he's also not a great debater. He's a kind of a, a congressional guy, right? Not a, not, not, uh, not a pretty face, right? <laughs> like literally or figuratively. And then you have 1968 where it's all chaos and I'm not exactly sure whether there was any discussion, but, um, y- you know, uh, even the Democratic nominee uh gets sort of thrown in at the last minute after after Robert Kennedy's assassinated. 1972, Nixon's running away for, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it's not until 1976 that you have kind of a close election. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, I don't know how we got on. Uh, well, one question, you know, it reminds me of one question, which has sort of been open and out there for a while, which is, you know, there was some idea that Trump might not even participate in the debates. And I think if he were running away with the election, if the if this if the situation were, were reversed and Trump was, you know, up by 10 points consistently, maybe you could see that happening. But it feels like him doing the ABC town hall last night you know, stepping out of the, you know, comfortable quarters of Fox News, he knows he needs to get out there and kind of talk to people outside of his bubble, so to speak. So I don't know. Is there any, did any you doubt guys in both your... see it? Did you guys both see the town hall mm-hmm. or no, either of you? Just okay. Yeah. Normally I would, I would, I would see it, but I, but I, but I, but I, but it seems to have gone and not just badly that like anti-Trump people say, Oh, you know, what an idiot that it kind of, you know, there's a reason why he doesn't go outside that bubble. <laughs> right. It, it, right. Know. I mean, like the one moment where the woman who was crying was talking about her mother and he, <laughs> I mean, we've seen him be kind of unable to be empathetic, but it's like one of those moments that campaigns would pay for to have a crying constituent be like, please comfort me. And he just is whiff, like he just can't do it, you know? It does. Um. So yeah, my question was going to be, is there any doubt in your minds that Trump will participate in them? I mean, are you expecting him to pull out at the last minute for any reason? Or is that kind of a just out the window at this point? Well, I don't think Trump thinks he's bad at debates. So I think he, and he wanted, I guess he wanted another, he wanted a fourth one-on-one debate too, right? So he's, well, he I mean, claimed, I think he thinks I, he's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. I think everything well, is right about... More than about, four. I think he said, didn't he offer, like, oh, I'll do 10 or something? Well, he also, 
floated or, uh, you know, said he would be into a four-hour Joe Rogan-style right. podcast debate, too, which is every, I think right. all of our worst nightmares. So what were you saying, Kate? I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, I was just saying, like, I think just putting even the political calculus aside, I think he... It's just such a weird thing to say about the president, but he loves being the center of attention. Like, and he loves TV events and he loves ratings and he loves the idea that everyone's going to tune in to see him. And I think that instinct of his is honestly stronger than any kind of self-awareness about the fact that he knows nothing about policy, has no ideological convictions, can't really string a sentence together. So I think for him, if you kind of divorce whatever voices are in his ears, that is his always, his driving force is to be in front of cameras and is to be important and listened to. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I think also that, I mean, if you look back to 2016, I mean, I think there's a pretty good argument that in any conventional terms, Clinton won every debate sort of like hands down, but it obviously didn't matter. Right. He, he, he's, and it's, it's, uh, some of that is like, we are all kind of, uh, locked into or buy into this idea that they are debates and it's going to matter who wins. Well, obviously you're not going to go into it like supporting Biden and, and, and Trump, you know, kind of turns in a good performance. You're like, Oh, I got to reconsider Trump. I mean, that's not, that's not going to happen. And that's not even just like a Trump thing, is it? In, in, in anybody yeah. thing. And even in, even in, even if you're undecided, even if you're undecided, let's take, um, uh, either of president Obama's, uh, elections where you have a sane person who's who's running against him it's not even like if you're undecided and kind of obama does poorly you say oh man obama sucked still doesn't really help me decide who i want to be president because it's not even really relevant to being president um so yeah it's even if he even if he does objectively poorly it's not really clear that it matters especially not now when people are so polarized. Well, that's one of the biggest things. It's like, it's not like either of these guys, this is an unknown entity in any way. You know, like I had a ton of issues with the the Democratic debates, mostly just because I think the way we do debates is like kind of ridiculous and giving people, you know, in 60 seconds, what's your health care plan? No one learns anything from that. You know, it's it's purely performative. It's who's good on their feet and who's good at attacking people, which I really don't know what relevance that bears to the presidency. But in this case, even that kind of bare minimum voters getting to know the candidate, that does not at all come into play because everybody knows who Trump is and everybody knows who Biden is. And that kind of it reduces. And, you know, no one's kidding themselves that Trump can debate policy at all. You know, I mean, you can Biden is not the best debater, but you assume that he actually like fundamentally kind of knows what his campaign is about. And that doesn't even go for Trump. So I don't know. There's just, there seems to me to be almost nothing substantive about holding these debates. And it just kind of reduces it down to a, who's going to make the biggest gaffe on if you're Biden or just kind of saying the quiet part out loud. If you're Trump, that's going to be the clip that kind of reverberates around the next day. But I, I think you're totally right, Josh. I just, I cannot imagine anyone who doesn't know which way they're going to come down coming into this debate and being like, you know what? Trump had a really presidential demeanor. That was a pivot. I'm casting my vote. That's just not going to happen. You know? Yeah. Unfortunately, I think the one, 
the unfortunate reality is that if Trump does turn in a somewhat normal performance, he's just graded on a curve and like yeah. that will be the that will be the consensus and the conclusion afterwards too. It happens when he gives a speech that's like halfway on the prom- teleprompter and you know, I think well, that's one of the challenges. No, you're right. And I think it's also um, an interesting thing that kind of has been coming up is for a while the Trump campaign was doing the whole Biden is like, you know, in, in decay, losing his mind, can't string a sentence together. And then it's like within the last two days, Trump has started doing he's on performance enhancing drugs, which is like, <laughs> what is, it's, it's all, it's also, what exactly does that mean? I right. mean, I know that, I mean, you, you, you're sort of forced to get into the whole Trumpian mindset, but I mean, I, I don't know a lot about it, but there are, there are drugs for people who do have, I mean, Biden doesn't have dementia. There are drugs for people who have dementia to help a little with memory and stuff like that. But it's not, I mean, performance enhancing drugs. We think about, you know, steroids (laughs) for athletes or like Viagra for men in sexual, it's, 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 it's not really relevant to like cognition and debates. Right. So what is he even talking about? Right. Yeah, it's just I, I, such a, like a funny and transparent attempt to, you know, they kind of realize like, wow, we're really lowering the bar for this guy, like time to lift it up really quick. Yeah, well, that was the thing. Everybody <laughs> yeah. was sort of saying in response to their things like, wow, if he comes up and like and and isn't like in a walker and, you know, <laughs> and, and have like one of those old drool tubes or something like that, that people are going to be saying, ah, oh, the new Biden, you know, uh, Trump was saying Talking he was better uh, than uh, ever. <laughs> yeah, on, uh, you know, uh, on, on the on the way out. I, I will say this, that that um, it's hard for me to think of the last presidential election uh I think maybe the last one is 1984, even though that was always obviously, and again, was there at the time, always obviously was going to be a blowout, that uh, you have two people who are so well-known by the public. You know, Trump, we've known about Trump as a person for 30 or 40, or I mean, not quite 40 years, you know, as outside of New York City for a good 30 years. We've seen him as president. We know who this guy is. Everybody knows who Trump is. And Biden has been in elective office in Washington. You know, Clinton had been governor of Arkansas for a dozen years, but, you know, Arkansas is a little state. Uh, Biden has been an elected official in Washington for almost 50 years at a pretty high level for, you know, for 30 years. And he was vice president and a pretty high profile vice president. So everybody knows who both of these guys are. You know, it's not like in 2008 where, oh, you know, McCain was known, a very known quantity person. Obama's a new guy. He'd only been senator, I think, for four years by election day, right? And before that, he had been, you know, like in the state legislature. So total unknown. So he's a real unknown. And all the things about him... He's a Democrat. He's a black man. He's got this weird Arabic name, you know, all these kind of things that accentuated the unknownness, perceived unknownness, but just at a factual level. He hadn't been on the national stage for very long. And if you look at every other time, I mean, obviously Trump, Trump wasn't known. I mean, he was known, but he wasn't known as a political person. Uh, And just every other one, Dukakis, governor of Massachusetts, you know, Want, 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 you know, whatever. Um, so that does make 
it makes everything, in a sense, kind of lower consequence. Because if Biden gets up there and says, like, I mean, obviously, they've introduced this kind of age thing. And look, the guy is, what, I think he's 77 or something like that. Um, You know, but if he says something really, I don't think he would. I mean, if he said something that really made it seem like he was having a, a, a like a cognitive moment that might actually hurt him. But if he does what I think is possible, just some very awkward statement, you'd say like, wow, Biden, awkward statement, going to have to rethink. Like, why? Right? He says he says a cringeworthy statement about twice a month now. Right. right. So it's not going to be like it's anything new. And kind of same with Trump. We know these guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it would take something pretty dramatic um, in a debate to make to to rethink someone you you absolutely positively know really well. Right. I feel like maybe the one the one of these debates that could move the dial on that front is maybe the town hall one because, like you're talking about yesterday, Kate, um, you know Trump's chance at empathy last night, crashing and burning. <laughs> that's really where Biden could. I don't know, have a a breakout moment, I guess, in a town hall. If someone has a personal story, they're looking for support or guidance or advice or, I don't know, just leadership. Um, it seems like Biden could maybe rise to the occasion in that type of situ- situation. And maybe that's the only one of these debates that could actually kind of provide that type of, I don't know, venue. Yeah, I just feel like even on that, it's just, I don't know, you've had to have your head pretty buried by this point to not kind of realize that Biden is a nice, empathetic guy, especially because you could have literally renamed the DNC, Biden is nice, Trump is not, <laughs> right, you know, right. like that was kind of the whole. And it's not even anything that 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 the Trump campaign contests right. in any real sense, right? I mean, it, it's, it's not like, oh, phony Joe Biden doesn't really care, has not really experienced suffering, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's just, this is just not, it's, 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 it's not where they play the game, right? If anything... Uh, they haven't exactly used it against Biden, but if anything, the aesthetics and messaging of Trump Trumpism is basically, you know, d- d- don't owning the libs. Mm-hmm. People who feel too much are weak, and we like and we like poking them. Yeah, I right? think they think Trump is an asshole too, but they think it's a good thing. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I don't exactly. think anyone at all contests except those moments in the RNC, which I will never get over when Kaylee McEnany was telling the story of her mastectomy and the punchline, the big <laughs> empathetic Trump to the rescue line was that he called her once after the procedure. I was shocked when she stopped talking. I was like, I can't believe it's that was she's it, your yeah. boss. That's bare minimum, you know? Like, And that was the Trump really cares moment. It's like, whoa, blown away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can sort of imagine him looking at the card. Hello, uh, yes. Kay, Kaylee. Yes, yes, yes. But yeah. no, it is. It, it, <laughs> they, they do. Um, it, it is funny because I, I did see that clip. And, you know, Biden, clearly that's Biden thing, Biden's mm-hmm. thing. Even where it's gotten him in trouble, the hugging and stuff. That is a genuine thing. Feelings, making a connection. You know, and clearly he kind of leads with his heart. That's who he is. I don't think there's anybody who thinks that is fake. It may not be. It may be overdone. It may not matter, but it's not fake. And but most politicians, when they get the kind of the teary eyed constituent kind of thing, campaign consultants live for that because you can say, hey, 
you know, I lost every, it's the human condition. We have all lost people. We have all experienced loss. So you kind of, you know, uh, reference some experience you've had, say you care. And look, most people are not sociopaths. They probably do care at some level, right? Uh, so you can kind of hit that out of the park without, it, 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 is not, it is not difficult to at least do serviceably for most people. But you see Trump, he, he, again, it's like the, the, normal, the normal person empathy lobe has been removed. It, you know, he can't, the, 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 he can't even fake it, right? Most politicians, most politicians can do serv- serviceably. Some politicians do it and you're like, you know what? It seems a little rehearsed. It didn't seem genuine. But with Trump, it's not even that. It'll just like, well, you know, Russia, Russia, Russia. <laughs> you know, just he, he, he can't, he doesn't, you know, it's a part of his brain. It's just not there. And it's, we, it is, it is uh, I was, it's, it's not chilling because we know who he is. It's, you know, we're past being chilled, but um, something wrong with him. And I'm thinking that, in that vein, DT, to your point, I think the town hall thing would be particularly bad for Trump just because, like we said at the top of the show, he's just not used to getting questions from like a sympathetic questioner because he's, kind of made reporters out to be his enemy. So it's combative. And, you know, his supporters like the fact that he's rude to reporters and stuff like that. But when you have, quote unquote, normal people asking the questions, he just, you know, getting angry is not a viable response (laughs) or getting combative, you know, and that is where he's just no man's land. Because if he's not fighting, he can't be empathetic. So he can only kind of be doddering, you know, tangential, try to you know, verbally get out of the situation. So that's, you know, a particularly bad corner for him to be backed into. Well, it feels like the case, I mean, even in cases where he doesn't in, in, you know, with, with, you know, regular people, even in cases where he doesn't get combative with the person, but what seems like his standard response is either to go to, you know, no president has ever been better for African American, you know, just these kind of these stock self praise, or, you know, that's because they hit me with Russia, 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 you know, just kind of going into his fight talk about how he was set up and treated unfairly. And so it's not like attacking the questioner, but you kind of see it to your point, Kate, kind of like he can only manage a displaced antagonism. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not in a fight with you, but I'm going to respond to your suffering by telling you about the fake news and right. how uh, and how no one has ever been treated worse than me. And it's kind of <laughs> right. you know, this is kind of nonsense. Uh, well, I thought, Kate, we could we could end the episode talking about a piece that you're working on, a little sneak peek for our listeners. But you mentioned it a little bit ago, the kind of democratic doomsday scenario. And I think, Josh, maybe you even mentioned this during our TPM virtual event uh, at the beginning of the month. And that, you know, if there's no winner declared on election night, if this goes to a, um, you know, a drawn out legal fight, that the Constitution does have a remedy for this situation of there not being a kind of a lawful elected president. And that would be President Nancy Pelosi, assuming that the Democrats retain control of the House. So, Kate, tell us kind of what you've been working on 
who you've been talking to and kind of what um, what our listeners need to know about this, you know, probably unlikely, but um, not impossible situation. Yeah. So I've been just kind of like digging into the, you know, constitutional weeds of what happens if X, Y, Z. And, you know, just to, to premise this, all of these situations are remote and all of them are a hundred percent impossible if this election isn't close, you know, like if, if Biden wins kind of the way that the polls are showing right now, we're going to know that he won on election night and none of this comes into play because the only way that these, you know, kind of constitutional arcane digging out what was written into law in the 1800 stuff even comes out is if we're in a situation where like one state is for the whole enchilada, anything other than that, this stuff doesn't happen. But, you know, so I've kind of run through these, the situations that liberals would be talking about at cocktail parties if cocktail parties were happening right now, you know, the quiet fears of, you know, what happens if say, it all comes down to Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania in the primaries took over two weeks to count all the ballots. And the biggest holdup was from Philadelphia, which is obviously a huge democratic stronghold. So it's not like out of the realm of possibility to say that in November's election, there's also a big delay. Election officials expect a delay. So if there is a delay and most of the in-person vote because currently 90% of Pennsylvania Republicans are planning on voting in person as compared to only about 64% of Democrats. So that sets up a scenario where on election night, Trump is leading in Pennsylvania. And in the days afterwards, as more ballots come in, as Philadelphia comes in, Biden chips away at maybe surpasses that lead. But the way Trump has kind of laid the foundation here is that he is going to cry foul with any mail-in ballots, you know, and he's going to take any possible inconsistency or um, issue and kind of blow it up to be like, look, proof, this is fraudulent. I already won. I won on election night. All this is bullshit. And if that happens and then we see this situation, if we see recounts, if we see things tied up in court, you know, then you start getting into the weird constitutional you know, details that according to an, a law from 1883, we have to have our electors picked 41 days after the election. This year, that's December 14th. Again, if, if things go really badly with these elections, it's not beyond the pale to think that it would take a state that long to count their votes, especially if there's litigation involved. So if we get to that point and there's still, you know, there's no clear winner or maybe uh, Biden has overcome Trump, in the as ballots are counted, but but Trump is screaming that that's not allowed, that's not legal, and then you kind of get into all these very weird situations where you're like, then the Pennsylvania legislature has the constitutional right to pick their own slate of electors, and they are Republican majority, so they could pick their slate. But also, the governor has some constitutional authority there too, who's a Democrat, who's going to pick based on the popular vote. You submit both of these lists to Congress. Well, unless this election changes things, we have a divided Congress. So they're each going to pick the candidate of their choice. And then you're at this weird stalemate and nobody really knows what we do after that. Do you just take Pennsylvania out of the out of the vote completely and pick who won the majority outside of that? Do you, um, you know, wait to figure things out? And in the meantime, you know, Pelosi ascends to the presidency if we've gotten past the end of January. It's just, you know, these are kind of the murky, undecided waters of our 
our law and our constitution that people never bother to figure out because these situations are so remote. And, um, and Kate, just to zoom in on that yeah. one point that I, I want everybody to remember, the way our system is set up, the president does not have to be defeated by anybody mm-hmm. to stop being president on January 20th of, 2020, of 2021. His term just runs out, and the Constitution right. says that Nancy Pelosi becomes president. And maybe she's only president for a week because it's settled a week later, and he's back being president or Biden's president. But that the 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 mechanics there are pretty important. Right, and he doesn't clear. have to be beaten. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, but it's just you know then you just get into weird permutations out of that you know because it's Trump was floating delaying the entire election not too long ago and though it's clear he doesn't have the ability to do that you know then you get into the and that's kind of what this project is that I'm doing is also like okay well what if the election got delayed you know what if then you are at this weird situation where just like you said Josh. Pence and Trump are out January 20th. That's in the Constitution. But if there's no election at all, Pelosi is also up for re-election in 2020. So she's out. And then we have President Chuck Grassley. But oh, wait, there's like most of the senators are gone now because they didn't have their re-elections and Democrats suddenly have a majority in the Senate. And it's just like, you know, you can go off like a million different roads here. But kind of the underlying part of this that you can actually use as more than like political sci-fi if you're like kind of a nerd and into this kind of stuff is that none of this is remotely possible if this election isn't close. It just really, it comes down to that, that the only way Trump can kind of crowbar in any chicanery or any, you know, this is fraudulent, this was rigged, is if there's doubt in anybody's mind because the counts are really close. And if the polls hold up the way we've seen them do for 10 months, Right now, it doesn't look like this election is going to be particularly close, you know, and things could change. But I would say that, you know, this is one reason why virtually every state that was set up with some sense of design in the last Mm -hmm. century or so or even longer, they have the head of state and the head of government are two different people. And that is, in most cases, that was meant to sort of approximate the way that in a constitutional monarchy the monarch is the head of state, prime minister is the head of government. And you see that, again, in most uh, most parliamentary democracies, you have a president who has either, you know, no power or very limited power in normal circumstances, but in an extreme circumstance is the head of state and, and the sort of the constitutional powers and a lot of reserve powers default to that person if there is this kind of weirdness. Um, and so, you know, Italy, Italy, the UK with the monarch, Israel, uh, you know, again, that is the model. You've got this kind of, you know, ceremonial president who, who has very little power except if you get into a weird situation like this, that that person would probably, would be the, it's not the case in every, in, 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 in every system, but that person would be the caretaker. They're already the head of state, but the caretaker sort of, you know, holding the reins or that person would say, okay, you know, we're going to have, you know, Oprah's going to be president till we figure this, you know, something like that. And that is, that is sort of the, you know, one of the many issues with the fact that our system, you know, we've got this 18th century system that we have sort of kept retooling for almost a quarter of a millennium. And there are a lot of, you know, basically with norms, we've been able to keep it together. But if things get really weird, it's not really designed 
for this modern kind of situation where you really can't have no head of state for some period of time. Uh, So, yeah, let's not let's hope none of that happens. (laughs) Well, and then, you know, the other thing that's kind of been a through line just from as I've been like writing and researching this is just the ambiguity that exists there is really dangerous because it's so easy to kind of wrench it into your definition of which party you want to be in office. And like, there's a really big raging debate over the line of succession itself, because, you know, there's both, there's a law and there's a succession clause of the constitution. And the law makes it pretty clear that Pelosi come, or the the speaker comes after president, vice president, but the constitutional clause refers to the next person in line as an officer. And there's a lot of scholarly debate about if, a member of Congress is an officer, and with most people thinking that that refers to someone in the executive branch, which would be Mike Pompeo. So then you get into this kind of like nightmare territory where you could see both Pelosi and Pompeo claiming the presidency with some grounds to do so, you know, and then you're just ah, chaos and crisis. What is the, how I, I, I didn't realize there was quite that much uh, uh, debate about that. Is, is that uh is there that much debate where he has a perceived you know is 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 there the perception that that is more than a sort of a semantic tick in the document i mean what i would say is that you know most people agree that right now the speaker is third in line but the debate mostly comes from a place of okay this is something we should iron out so we don't get to a place where Pompeo backed up by a legal argument from Bill Barr could say, wait, she's not an officer, you know? So I would say it's more, it's more of the realm of like, let's make sure that partisans don't get their hands on this and turn it into something else. Yeah. Right. More than an actual, no, he should be next in line kind of thing. Well, remind me if I'm right that, uh, you know, what is it? The the house in a, in a dispute, the house picks the president, Senate Mm -hmm. picks the vice president, but, but, I believe the House votes as state delegations. Am I right Correct. about that? Yeah. Okay. Which and Republicans th- have more of right now. Right. So, so in present in 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 disputed president uh, presidential election terms, the Republicans currently control both houses of Congress. Yes, yeah, that's right. So, unless things change in 2020, which they could, because a lot of the state delegation majorities right now are only controlled by like one or two seats. So it's not inconceivable that at the end of this election, Democrats could control the House delegation-wise as well. But you're right. Right now, Republicans control both. And if it went to a contingent election thrown to the House, which can happen kind of a number of ways, but interestingly, out of a deadlock of the Electoral College, which could happen, then it would get thrown to the House. And as a with, a, with the makeup right now, that would mean a, a Trump presidency again. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, okay, we'll look forward to your, your story. <laughs> yeah. And our listeners should definitely keep an eye out for that. But um, I think that's all the time we have this week. All right. Well, remember, the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Iced Coffee. They have an offer right now, 25% off on all orders until Election Day. So definitely take advantage of that. Grady'sColdBrew.com with the promo code TPM. All right. Talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, later, guys. folks. Bye.